Welcome to the Hertie School of Governance. The Hertie School. Hertie School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. As a school of governance, we see our mission in fostering these important discussions. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. All right, welcome. My name is Mark Hallerberg. I am Dean of Research and Faculty here at the Hertie School of Governance. And I'm delighted to have Minister Jensen coming from Norway. She has a very interesting background in terms of her sort of her development into becoming the Minister of Finance. I should say, and I mentioned this to her, I have a research project comparing what finance ministers have done before they became finance minister. And so I don't just read kind of what sorts of things has she done, but she's already in my data set, okay, in terms of how this runs. Uh, and one of the things we look at is, is as in terms of educational background, that you have a bachelor in economics from the Norwegian School of Economics, indeed, from 1992. You then spent some time in politics uh, as a member of the city council of Oslo. So there's this sort of municipal level government that's part of, of your background. You then joined the Norwegian parliament in 1997, and you remain in the Norwegian parliament. And from 2006, uh, she has served as leader of the Progress Party. She's also been very active in terms of committees. Uh, the, one of my favorite committees is somebody who studies budgets is the Financial Committee. And you served as chair of that from 2001 to 2005. I'm guessing you spend time there as well, but on the other side, so to speak, in terms of having the committee grill you instead of you grilling the committee. And since 2013, she has served as Minister of Finance. So a tenure now going on, if it's 2019, going on six years, that's a pretty long tenure for a finance minister in Europe, let alone in other parts of the world. And I can tell you that from my database as well. Well, her topic today is thinking about liberal values and a less liberal world, the economic case for rules-based global integration. I should say as well, we had Wolfgang Ischinger, who's a professor here, who helped uh, host and direct the Munich Security Conference over the weekend in Munich. And there was a lot of discussion about this idea of rules-based global integration and the linking of different countries under rules or should they be somehow separate. And I think your topic is especially timely given different things that are happening here today. So, Mr. Jensen, I'd like to invite you to the stage, and we look forward very much to your presentation. We will then have a discussion afterwards. So, thank you. Well, <clears throat> thank you very much for your invitation uh, to come here and uh, speak today. I will uh, take this opportunity to talk about how the rise of free and uh, open uh, markets throughout the Western world has built trust among nations and raised living standards to a level never seen in history. I believe our efforts to promote further and deeper integration are key to meet the challenges of tomorrow. Yet, we currently see less support for uh, the core values of the international economic order. And I will argue that uh, the risk of weaker global uh, institutions and of a diluted set of uh, common rules are pressing issues that can only be met by an even stronger commitment to liberal core values. Let's see if I can make this work, yeah. Norway, as well as Germany, has a long history of trading overseas. The Vikings, 
often portrayed as primitive, uh, were indeed sophisticated in terms of trading in distant markets. Their extensive trade relations reached as far as Greenland, the Caspian Sea, um, and the Mediterranean. Indeed, the sea journeys uh, of the early Vikings tell us that the trade links between Norway and Germany go more than a thousand years back. Recently, researchers, by using DNA from fish bones, could uh, substantiate theories about how the Vikings supplied people of Schleswig with uh, stockfish, perhaps as early as in the ninth century. In the following centuries, uh, trade in the North Sea would increasingly become in the hands of uh, German merchants. On the Norwegian West Coast, a commercial enclave of the influ influential Hanseatic League uh, was established in the city of Bergen, uh, ensuring a steady supply of Norwegian stockfish, whale oil, and hides to Germany and to ports along the Hanseatic trade routes. These were influential forces of their time. Yet, even today, in international trade, in combination with well-managed national economies, uh, is the main explanatory factor behind the high levels of prosperity in our societies. In fact, bringing down barriers that separate markets is probably the most successful economic policy ever pursued. From a historical perspective, nowhere is the insight more deeply rooted than in Germany. In the early 1830s, a German customs union was established, compromising, um, no, sorry, comprising among a number of, um, at the time, independent states, that Zollverein was the first of its kind. With time, uh, the union would um, unify a myriad of markets, previously separated by customs and tariffs. Whereas historians have pointed out a range of political reasons driving the unification of markets, uh, the economic gains were also well understood. To the individual states, giving up tariffs, their primary source of revenue, seemed a high price to pay. Yet, in return, larger markets triggered a massive expansion in the productivity potential of the economy. The economic historian Florian Plöckel has shown how the Zollverein uh, triggered growth in manufacturing and shifted the occupational structure towards higher income uh, occupations. Some decades on, in the 1860s, Sweden-Norway would sign a free, tra free trade agreement with the Zollverein, allowing the historic and commercial ties between uh, the German and the Scandinavian markets to grow stronger. Since then, Trade liberalization uh, at a global level has been massive. Technological developments, uh, including improvements in transportation and information and communication technology, have reduced the distance between us. Tariffs have been driven down, as have non-tariff barriers. Integration of markets has moved in waves. Liberalization in the 1800s was reversed by conflicts, depression, and protectionism in the first half of the 1900s. The social, political, and economic consequences were devastating. From this harsh experience, uh, a, a new notion of mutual um, dependence emerged. After the Second World War, we saw a renewed belief in international cooperation among Western nations. 
this gave rise to an institutional architecture that would govern international relations up until today. The IMF, World Bank, the UN, OECD, and the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, which uh, in 1995 expanded into the World Trade Organization, all form part of what often is referred to as an international liberal order. This system has set the stage for rules-based international trade, as opposed to power-based. It has enabled more countries to connect to global markets. By reducing national discretion, common rules also support more predictable world trade, essential to long-term investments and efficient production patterns. Today, a large fraction of everyday consumption is produced outside national borders, uh, sometimes in supply chains that crisscross the globe uh, in complex ways. During the, these decades, we also saw a, um, a rising tide of democracies uh, throughout the world. With the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War, the tide accelerated. A surge in democratic institutions and a belief in individual uh, rights spread through Eastern Europe, Latin America and Africa. More countries accepted membership in global institutions. What had predominantly been a Western world order would uh, increasingly become a shared system of rules and values. This model became an engine of economic growth and technological change. Based on a mindset in which technological and economic developments in one country is seen as the source of other countries' trade, investments, and technological change. A win-win. In the past 50 years, average GDP per capita has doubled. At the same time, world population has also doubled. The majority of the world's uh, population has benefited from this astonishing rise in income. As a result, the share of the world population living in extreme poverty has come down from one in three in 1990 to about one in 10 today. Cooperation and integration have also brought down the level of conflict internationally. As shown by this chart, interstate conflicts have been almost non-existent in recent years. As a mirror of the Zollverein, <coughs> Europe from the 1950s again became the arena of uh, the deepest commitment to international integration ever seen. With the objective of promoting economic prosperity and mutual dependence, the first steps were taken towards the creation of a single market in Europe. European integration since uh, then has resulted in the world's largest and deepest cross-border market. Through the European Economic Area Agreement, the EEA, Norway is part of the European single market. In fact, Norway's economy is in many ways more deeply integrated into the EU than many EU countries uh, or economies. As seen from this chart, uh, almost two-thirds of Norway's trade is um, with the EU, while Germany's trade with the EU comes to less than a half. Being part of the single market has brought great advantage uh, to the Norwegian economy. Yet, 
we also face the other side of the coin. The regulatory burden can be overwhelming. And I understand those who argue that regulation of uh, the single market has become too extensive and too complex. As a politician coming from a libertarian uh, political tradition, I believe in the freedom of choice and limited government that empowers people and businesses to achieve their goals. In general, I believe uh, in the virtues of uh, markets and their ability to find the best outcome. That said, I recognize the need to regulate markets for them to work um, efficiently. Indeed, uh, unregulated markets are not necessarily as well-functioning as the free markets we know from textbook um, economics. Rather, <clears throat> regulation must frame the market, reducing imbalances and imperfections, promoting easy entry and exit, and leveling the playing, play, the, 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 the playing field. Yet, we must regulate wisely, and only to the extent necessary. Not more, not less. That goes for international markets as well. Recent decades have uh, witnessed a fall in tariffs and a rise in the regulatory complexity of advanced economies. Today, so-called uh, non-tariff measures seem to pose higher barriers to trade than tariffs. As services have uh, become the dominant sector in advanced economies, the role of tariffs has diminished further. Yet, services are indeed characterized by high barriers to trade. In fact, <clears throat> the OECD suggests that barriers to trade in services largely exceed uh, the average tariff on traded goods. As a consequence, trade liberalization has increasingly become a question of overcoming trade barriers associated with differences in national rules and regulation. However, uh, opening up to more trade and investment does not necessarily mean deregulation. Rather, in, um, in Europe, deep integration has partly been achieved by harmonizing regulation across markets. Instead of widening <coughs> differences between markets, supranational rules and regulations make markets more uniform. When regulatory differences are reduced, markets will work more efficiently with fewer loopholes and more transparency. Common standards in product markets, common competition law, common rules for public procurement and for state uh, aid are among the measures that help bring down regulatory barriers within the European single market. At the same time, there must be room for national adaptations to take account of local conditions, knowledge and preferences. Clearly, distinguishing between regulation that better could be implemented at a supranational level and regulation that is better implemented at the national level is far from straightforward. Resistance against being, regula put this, uh, in, being regulated by Brussels. Uh, one important argument leading to Brexit illustrates how controversial this issue can be. Striking a balance requires fingerspitzengefühl. I'm not very good at German, but I hope I pronounced it so pretty okay, thank you. And, um, and uh, constant adjustments to maintain legitimacy. Um, <clears throat> 
As Minister of Finance, the financial sector is uh, the part of the single market under my direct responsibility. The financial system is critical to the functioning of the economy and a premise for economic stability. When the financial system fails to function, the economy fails. From experience, we have learned how financial crisis can cause severe and long-lasting harm to the economy. In Norway, we suffered a serious banking crisis in the early 1990s, which Carmen Reinhardt and Kenneth Rogoff have ranked as one of the big five uh, in advanced economies. Promoting financial stability is different from many other areas uh, of economic uh, policymaking. While <clears throat> economic policy generally aims to achieve the best possible outcome, like maximizing welfare for its citizens or policies promoting financial stability, aim at preventing the worst possible outcomes. And to safeguard financial stability, it is necessary to regulate the financial sector. Yet, also in financial markets, we have to strike a balance. We should never forget that the art of banking is better handled by bankers than politicians. Deep integration also implies that imbalances can spread fast between institutions and countries. Promoting financial stability across markets requires regulatory cooperation. The financial crisis in 2008 spurred common efforts led by the G20 and the IMF to develop a set of common standards and rules for the financial sector, which, um, uh, sorry, with the Basel Committee uh, on banking supervision um, at the helm. The Basel Capital Accord of 1988 was su <coughs> supplemented by new accords, Basel II and Basel III. Most advanced jurisdictions have transposed these standards into legislation. As a member of <coughs> the European Economic Area, Norway has an obligation to implement most of the financial regulations adopted by the EU. I understand those who argue that international common standards for governing the financial sector have become too extensive and complex. Counting the ballooning number of um, pages of, of the regulation has become a popular sport. Um, still, <clears throat> the instability that might result from too little regulation is probably worse. Besides uh, the high economic costs of adverse financial shocks, Recurrent uh, financial instability undermines people's confidence in the economic system. In countries with persistent financial stress, people resist taking up loans uh, and stash their savings under the mattress, uh, not in the bank. Opening up to international markets increases exposure to external shocks, not only in financial markets, in all markets. International integration requires continuous adjustments <clears throat> and triggers shifts in the occupational composition uh, that can indeed be painful, both to those who sees their job opportunities um, diminish, as well as to the economy as a whole. Yet, I do not believe in shielding the economy from external influences. Rather, I would <clears throat> argue that we must prepare for such um, instability, not hide. And why? Because barriers to integration 
will over time cause our economies to become less in tune with economic realities outside our borders. Imbalances may <clears throat> rise over time and eventually require abrupt adjustments. Indeed, <clears throat> we must not confuse stable with static. Instead, we should recognize that stable long-term economic development is the result of continuous adaptation to economic realities. What is more, open markets and external impulses are important drivers of uh, economic development. By setting off changes to what and how we produce, they present our economies with new opportunities. In fact, gains from open markets are to be found not in increased exports or uh, more investments abroad, but rather in the ways our, <clears throat> our domestic resources are put to better use at home. The gain from opening up the economy is therefore to be measured by the extent it translates into rising productivity. In Norway, periods of uh, major sectorial shifts tend to overlap with uh, periods of high productivity growth. And let me illustrate with, uh, to me, uh, a very familiar example. Um, when I grew up, the garment and textile industry was a significant sector in Norway. Uh, in the 1970s, the industry employed one out of ten manufacturing workers, well represented by influential trade unions. At the po uh, that point, Norway had been a member of the European Free Trade Association, EFTA, for about 10 years. So had Portugal, with at the time a highly cost-competitive garment and textile industry. Fierce competition from Portugal and others uh, led to a major restructuring of Norway's garment and textile industry in the following years. By the turn of the millennium, the sector employed only 3% of manufacturing workers, uh, or as few as 3 per thousand of all employees. This sectorial shift would give rise to job creation in sectors with higher productivity. When China <clears throat> entered the WTO in 2001, Norway was well positioned to meet the Chinese supply shock. In fact, to Norway, the entry um, of China into the world market did not imply job losses. Rather, we saw a sharp decline in prices on products we no longer produced, among them clothings and shoes, and higher demands for our exports. The result was a massive rise in our uh, overall terms of trade. The lesson from this story can be summarized as uh, follows. We should not be afraid of change. When firms fail, or even entire sectors become marginalized, they give the floor to others, often with higher productivity. And when markets function well, higher productivity translates into more generous compensation of employees and increasing return of investment. There is nothing new in this insight. More than 200 years ago, Adam Smith gave us a theoretical base uh, for how economies um, thrived with the division of labor. Within the next decades, 
David Ricardo presented the theory of comparative advantages. These early theories of uh, international trade have been elaborated and refined. Still, the overarching message is clear and consistent. Opening up markets allow for an improved composition of production uh, and consumption. Their insights have been supported by experience. For centuries, we have witnessed how integration into inter international markets have boosted business uh, potentials, increased personal freedom, and lifted overall living standards. The result is a world that is more interconnected than ever seen in history. To the consumer, opening up the economy gives access to more and cheaper goods and services. Open markets also set in motion uh, technology, uh, technology, uh, technology transfers, and they provide greater incentives for research and investment in technology. When introduced, technological developments benefit from economies of scale uh, offered by larger markets, often setting off uh, significant cost reductions in early production of new technology. With time, more and more countries have chosen to open their markets. A number of low-income countries have in recent years uh, or recent decades increased their participation in world trade many of which have become significant production sites in international value chains, allowing them to become deeply integrated in a relatively short time. So far, common rules and systems for dispute settlements have supported a peaceful integration of these new economies into the global market. It is easy to overlook how astonishing this achievement is. When China re-entered the world stage in the years leading up to the turn of the millennium, it represented a major supply shock to the world economy in terms of labor and of goods. And for a long time, this transition went on peacefully. Today, the global trading climate is changing. Trade is at the core of the ongoing rivalry between the US and China. The idea of uh, rules-based trade is compromised by the implementation of protectionist measures. A few days ago, the US administration concluded an investigation report on um, whether imports of cars and car parts pose a threat to US national security. The world follows um, developments closely as a sharp rise in tariffs may cause serious harm to the world economy, including the economies of Germany and the US itself. Protectionist tendencies are spreading, not only in the US, but also worldwide. Whereas tariffs have come down to low levels globally, the use of protectionist measures, uh, more broadly defined, moves in the wrong direction. And considering our long history as trading nations, one might ask, how can anyone oppose the benefits of trade? In recent years, increasing inequality in advanced economies has raised doubt as to whether open markets and technological change serve the interests of the majority. 
Whereas the richest percentiles have seen their wealth soar, the low and medium skilled uh, perceive income growth and opportunities to be limited. Another uh, strand of opposition is rooted in the fear that national sovereignty is comprised by liberalization. And to some extent, international commitments might imply less room to regulate at the national level. Reducing national discretion is indeed the means by which markets become more uniform. Yet, there is always a balance. And international agreements in general leave ample room for national differences in regulation. Still, we must take the discontent seriously. The legitimacy of pursuing further integration rests with our ability to translate the opportunities of international markets into broad-based rise in, uh, in living standards. Only with a fair distribution of opportunities and gains can we expect confidence in the political agenda to grow stronger. Going forward, a lack of support may impede international institutions' ability to carry out their task. They represent the liberal order that has served our economy so well. If undermined, it will be bad news for all, both for open economies heavily dependent on trade and for economies where potential gains from trade are still left unrealized. Alongside a rise in protectionist tendencies, we are also witnessing how more general liberal values are met with increasing resistance. Recently, the independent watchdog Freedom House, which analyzes developments in global democracy, country by country, warned about a reversal of global uh, freedom. Support for democratic values seems to be on the decline. Looking ahead, we should expect the, the Western world to be relatively smaller, both as a share of um, the world economy and in terms of wielding political and economic influence. The demographic and economic weights of non-Western countries will gravitate power towards the Southeast. The weights of liberal values may be reduced accordingly. Against this pessimistic backdrop, what can we do? How can we best ensure that we continue on a path of economic and social development that supports stability, promotes growth, and reduces tensions? First, we must work to strengthen the global system. Only by doing so will the system support stable development also in the future. As an arena for uh, negotiating new initiatives, the WTO has for a long period failed to deliver. The agreement uh, governing trade in services was concluded in the 1990s. Meanwhile, the world has changed. Power has shifted towards new countries, some of which failed to live up to mutual uh, multilateral standards. In addition, the economy has become more digitalized. Our concepts of value creation and trade uh, are challenged. In particular, more value is attached to intellectual property. Protection of such 
immaterial value is a legitimate concern. And the regulatory framework risks falling behind. Still, I will highlight the WTO as the foremost guarantee for a peaceful handling of the global rebalancing of economic power that is taking place. Shortcomings should not be used as arguments against the system. Rather, they should spur our efforts to improve it. Second, we need fair distribution of the gains from trade. Although markets are international, distribution policies are typically national. We must acknowledge that national policies need to redistribute the gains from trade to a broader part of our populations. In particular, uh, policies should provide citizens with the means to participate in an ever-changing occupational landscape. For those who fall behind in the labour market, measures and retraining programmes should support their efforts to re-enter. And a sound security net must ensure that all citizens enjoy reasonable living standards. Otherwise, if national policies fail, people will blame international integration. Finally, I will stress the importance of a fair and efficient tax system. A well-functioning tax system cons constitutes the backbone of a strong and supportive public sector. The state's capacity to tax is therefore crucial to the sustainability of public finances and the welfare state. Equally important, support for free and open markets will only be maintained if global companies are taxed where the value is created and the taxation of cross-border activity is fair. That requires international cooperation. We must stand together to fight international profit shifting and the erosion of our tax bases. We have come a long way. Recent years have brought major achievements in information sharing through the common reporting standard and country by country reporting. As well, <coughs> as we all know, information is key to correct taxation. Furthermore, the international principles for allocating taxing rights between countries are strengthened through the BEPS project on base erosion and profit shifting developed by the OECD. The project brings together more than 115 countries and jurisdictions to tackle the gaps between different tax systems. The aim is to prevent both double taxation and tax avoidance by aggressive tax planning. Yet, it is a challenge to identify regulation that supports efficiency in the markets of the new economic landscape. The digital economy is truly global, uh, transcending borders easily, uh, and relies on new business models that uh, require us to think in new ways. I strongly support the efforts on taxation and the digital economy within the OECD's global uh, framework. And I am deeply concerned that if we uh, fail in our efforts, our tax base could be severely diminished. That will undermine support for international trade. So let me sum up. Maintaining an open world economy is a challenge. 
It has taken decades of targeted efforts and compromises to get us where we are today. Current developments risk undermining this world order. Technological change and international trade must not be made scapegoats for the failure of domestic policies. I am a firm believer that international integration and technology hold the potential to provide the world with astonishing welfare gains into a very distant future. Even in, if others build barriers to economic integration, our economies will gain from continuing on the path of deeper integration. Increased opposition and decreased influence of the liberal economic order should motivate renewed efforts to build support for free and open markets and societies. This is the time to improve our model, not swap it for a less liberal one. In fact, I believe we can't afford not to. Thank you very much. I'm going to ask you, Minister, two or three questions, and then I'm going to open it up to the floor. And thank you very much for your presentation. You focused on the liberal order and benefits for the liberal order. And I think you made, is the light getting, could we maybe even turn off the light? I don't know if that's possible. It's not so, there we go. <laughs> very good. Um, so let's think a bit about, about trade. You made a very strong case that in Norway, there was a decline in the parallel industry because of competition from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And in some sense, that, in terms of how that went forward for Norway, that was good. But let me give you an alternative. I eat a lot of Norwegian salmon. Mm -hmm. I very much appreciate Norwegian salmon. I can imagine a case, though, there's also salmon from, from Alaska. And in this case, Norway is very competitive in salmon. But there could be a president who says, well, I'm going to slap tariffs on Norwegian salmon because uh, fish can be a national security uh, concern, right? <laughs> now, if, if this were to happen, the question I have is, you are, of course, in the single market, but you're not a member of the European Union. Does this sort of change where you have countries now that aren't necessarily playing by the rules, does that change what Norway has to do in the future in trade? Well, I think that's a question that actually sums up uh, my presentation. Um, the answer to all of that is that we continue to promote more trade, not less trade. I mean, for us, Norway is a very small but very open economy. I mean, yes, we produce a lot of fish. And I, <laughs> if we, if we um, are no longer able to export it, I think we, um, we would have a problem. <laughs> to, uh, we cannot eat that fish uh, ourselves. <laughs> Same comes with oil and gas production. Yeah. We don't consume our own oil and gas at all. That's right. Not in Norwegian households, not at all. We export everything. So of course for us it's important to have access to, to global markets. But that goes for, I think, basically all countries. Having that access gives you the opportunity to export what you are good at and import what you cannot produce. So this has worked. It has created more value. It has created more productivity. It has created more wealth for basically all of us. So as I said, trade is not the problem. The problem is 
national authorities' ability to distribute wealth, to distribute income. That is, I think, the main cause of what we're seeing right now, and that's why we have to talk about it. But just to follow up, so with this, I mean, there's one of the questions as well that the United Kingdom is dealing with in the negotiations with Japan, for example. The Japanese don't want to just sign something that's just copy and paste from the existing treaties with the European Union. So as you face these sorts of changes on the international realm, does that force Norway to get closer to the European Union and maybe perhaps to consider once again a referendum? <laughs> Norway's had two referendums. I know this. Yeah. And uh, I, don't, I don't think we will see a third one coming up uh, in any foreseeable future. I think uh, basically uh, the Norwegian majority is happy with the agreement. Um, okay. It works and I don't see we, we, we won't have that debate uh, coming up. I think instead we have, we have fractions of of the opposite debate in, in Norway as well. Uh, opposition against the agreement, uh, the, the, the uh, message that uh, everything is decided in Brussels, uh, we leave our sovereignty to Brussels. This is, these are arguments that we hear in basically all countries in, in Europe, also in Norway. Um, but this is an agreement that is serving Norway very well. Europe is by far the most important trading partner to Norway. Okay. We need access to that market. Good. Let me move on to something else. You talked about financial stability and the importance of it. You talked about coordination across different countries. You didn't use these two words that I hear increasingly here, which is banking union. Now, I guess the question I have is I've heard some discussions in non-euro countries in Scandinavia about perhaps joining banking union in the future, and the reason is for stability purposes. What's your opinion on this? What sort of role would Norway play? Would there be any consideration of joining some piece of banking union, even though you would not be a European Union country? We follow very closely on <clears throat> um, the development of um, different regulatory, regulatory framework uh, within the European Union. I, pay, I take a lot of time uh, visiting the, uh, the, com <laughs> the Commission discussing this. And I think it's important for Norway to, to discuss many of these um, regulations at an early stage uh, because they will affect us whether we uh, I mean we are it's always adopting basically every EU regulation there is and we do it at a high speed and when it comes to the the, the financial market it's actually been very necessary to, to have uh, more international based rules I mean after the the aftermath of um, the crisis, the economic crisis that we've had globally. Uh, when, when you have such a, um, a global economy, um, you can get seriously affected, I mean, by, by things happening in another country. That's why it's important to have common regulations and standards, because it, it, it is from a, from a security point of view, but also from a competitive point of view. So for us, it's important to implement these regulations um, but of course, as I said, it's important for us to address the regulatory burdens that come with them. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think it's important for, for the European Commission in the future to pay attention to this, to find the, strike the right balance between what is the perfect regulation. Because if you over-regulate, uh, that creates problems as well. And bureaucracy, which we don't need. Okay. I have a final question, then I'm going to open it up. So all those of you in the audience, please think through a few questions. Um, 
My final question has to do with really about liberalism per se. So to go back to your theme, you talked about the free movement of goods, you talked about the free movement of services, but your party, of course, is not so in favor of free movement of labor. Mm. And could you talk a bit about what role does the movement of labor play in this overall framework, and uh, how does this then relate to liberalism? Well, I, it's not perfectly or entirely correct. We're not against free movement of labor. It has served uh, the Norwegian economy well. Okay. Yeah. So that's, I think, it, what you're talking about is a topic that's uh, addressed in basically any country in the world right now, and that has yeah. to do with uh, migration issues, and that's a different story. Yeah, I meant restriction, but, yeah. I, but in terms of how that runs and in terms of how that plays Yeah, but out. I think, I mean, if, if you look at um, the European labor market, which we mm -hmm. are part of, it has actually served nowhere well when, when, we, when we have seen uh, the economy grow. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had, uh, I think the, the Norwegian business is the pleasure of um, importing important uh, labour. Uh, and what we saw when uh, the oil price declined in 2014, many of those workers left Norway, went back home. And now you see a tendency for them to coming back. So this is, a, it's, I think it's a market that works, but what we need to, what we need to address is um, not the labour market as such, it's um, the social welfare issues that f comes with it. Uh, and that are issues on the table in many European countries. How to, how to, if you can even out those rights in a way, because it has to do with the, the, the uh, cost of living in different countries. And they are not the same. Hmm. Okay, very good. Let me open up the floor. Questions? I saw on the way back that hand first. So please introduce yourself, say your name, and give your question. Uh, thanks, Minister, for the speech. Uh, I'm Max Roma. I'm a student here. Um, well, I guess case in point of what's going wrong, Brexit, um, what do you think about... Well, there was a lot of talk about the Norway model that the UK should pursue that. What do you think about the feasibility of that model for the UK? And also, what do you think will be the consequences for global trade of a hard Brexit? Mm. Thank you. No. Two different <laughs> questions, actually. And so easy to answer. Uh, no, the first one is actually easier to answer than the second. Um, when the debate on Brexit started, I think uh, all Norwegian ministers that actually went to, to London got the same question. Uh, because there was a lot of interest about the agreements and the, the so-called Norwegian model. Uh, but they failed to understand um, the, uh, what's, what's the, the core idea behind the agreements. It's access to the single market which is the main reason for UK leaving uh, uh, the European Union. So it's not a model for them to adopt. It has never been. Um, so I think it's, it has been off the table all the time, but it was something that came into, uh, into the debate, to the public uh, attention for a while, and now it's gone. It's not on the table at all. So what, it will, what will be the consequences? Well, there will probably be um, tough consequences, at least economically, uh, and then at least in the short-term perspective, and then what will happen in the future, we don't know. I think all countries, both within the European Union and the EA agreement, uh, in, in the EA um, area, we, we prepare equally for this. Because as a member of the uh, single market, we are affected in the exact same way as a, any European country. So we are working very closely with the European Union uh, with any outcome of Brexit, whether it's a no-deal scenario or any other scenario. We, we are looking into um, 
uh, what we have to set up. Uh, and then, of course, we need to work bilaterally with the UK as well. I mean, UK is an extremely important trading partner to Norway. Uh, so we need to fix uh, what needs to be fixed bilaterally as well. So it takes up a lot of work, of course, but um, uh, I think we're all curious about the outcome of this and we don't know yet. In the red. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I'm from the Federal Foreign Office, and I'm heading a new department that's called Business and Human Rights. And we are implementing the German National Action Plan Business and Human Rights, which in turn is based on the United Nations Guiding Principles. So, uh, Minister, you spoke, uh, uh, and I share your observations, you spoke about uh, uh, the rise of protectionism fueled uh, by this by inequalities created by globalization so what do we do with globalization losers so to say and um, may I go back to your uh, uh, to the garment industry uh, example you used um, now Norway seems to have gotten over this pretty well but what about China and there are a lot of globalization users in China in the garment industry getting paid, I don't know, $2 an hour, etc. So um, if we look at it globally, don't we somehow need to address this? And here is basically my question for you. Uh, our national action plan proposes that business takes into account uh, considerations of sustainability, both social uh, and uh, environmental. Um, so, do you see such a role of business in that context, working for a more just globalization? Uh, and would you advise regulation? Or do you think uh, um, this somehow can do without regulation? Thank you. Thank you. Well, I th first of all, I think uh, all modern democracies pay a lot of attention to um, um, many of the topics that you address. I think it's extremely important. Human rights is important to Norway. We address it basically in uh, every context that we, uh, we go abroad. But that said, as you, you, you mentioned, um, the losers of, um, of um, international competition, uh, who are they? Um, thank you. Um, you mainly talked about uh, uh, people who lost out on globalization mm -hmm. in our European countries. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but the but, reason yeah. why I ask is, do, do you see countries losing or individuals losing? Um, I think uh, right now I'm more thinking about individuals, exactly. uh, strata of society. Mm -hmm. So basically the same phenomenon, but how do we address that? Because there's the issue of national sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And if, for example, a garment producing country does not address those issues of human rights and social inequalities, mm -hmm. can our business somehow help to do so? Y yes, but I think the, the, the best way of doing it is uh, having access to markets. I mean, if you look at countries that, let's take a very obvious example, Venezuela. I, think, I don't really think I need to say more. Uh, the countries that are participating globally are earning from it. And as I said in my speech, 
it's my responsibility as a minister of Norway to make sure that the people of Norway uh, are taken good care of, that they are entering the welfare system, that they are having their rights taken care of, and we do. And I think that's why the Nordic countries are not facing the same problems as you see in the UK, in the US, and in many other countries. Because this has been on the, the, the Nordic agenda for decades. We have a tax-financed welfare system, which means that it's not the size of your wallet that gives you access to school, education, hospitals, uh, which means that uh, we distribute income more evenly. That's why it works. But I think you see these debates growing also in the Nordic countries, because inequality is, of course, a growing problem everywhere. Um, so we need to take it seriously, but I think, I think that the answer to this is not less trade, it's more trade, but it's the responsibility of national politicians to make sure that their people uh, get access to the needs that they have. And as you mentioned, China. Well, there are, of course, issues to, um, to consider when it comes to China, but it's out of the question that when China entered the global market, millions of Chinese have come out of poverty. And if that continues, it will be a good thing for the Chinese, despite the fact that there will be human rights issues and other issues to, to continuously address. I agree to that. Back from the back. Hey, uh, my name is Frederick. I'm a PhD student here at the Hertie School. And uh, yeah, first of all, I'm glad that you made a very compelling case for Norway joining the European Union after <laughs> you campaigned for a, for, a, for a successful referendum on that to export the social democratic model of Nordic countries to the EU. Um, and no, but actually I wanted to ask you something on the... Um, how reconcilable all these ideas are that you presented. So um, I'm sure you don't know the writings of Danny Roderick and uh, from, the, from the problems that you have mentioned. And actually these can be broken down to the trilemma of the world economy. You have, if you have deep economic integration, you can either have democracy or the nation state because otherwise um, with deep economic integration, they act on different stages, like the, the capital and the politicians act on different stages. So given that your party rather promotes economic liberalism, but um, nativism or so in uh, political terms, how do you think is all, are all these three things reconcilable with the economic integration of the world economy that you propose? Uh, yeah. Do you propose? Well, I think the short answer to that is that because the, the, uh, the world is not perfect. And since it's not, you need regulations uh, to um, handle the, the different issues that you, may, you mentioned in, uh, in, uh, in your question. Uh, but I, I, I think that, um, as, I, as I, uh, I've spent time on promoting here, I, 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 I truly believe that the only way to um, bring more people out of poverty is uh, to promote uh, free trade. That, I mean, the his, history is the living proof of that. 
what we have seen for the last three, four, five, six decades is less poverty in the world, not more. And that is thanks to free trade. And if, if we were to have less trade, we will experience more uh, poverty. And then you will again have migration issues coming up and so forth. So I, I, I truly believe that if you promote trade, you will get uh, better living conditions for people globally. And I, th I mean, I think it's very simple. But it's of course very difficult since it's on the, the it's so much on the agenda now. But I think it's it's it's. I don't I don't agree with uh, the rhetorics used to uh, reduce trade. It's 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 not the right argument. The reasons behind it is not, it's 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 the lack of responsibility from from national politicians over time. And just look at the United States. The average American has not had an increase in wages for years. Of course, that does something to you. And you need to blame someone for it. And the blame right now is on trade, not on uh, their own politicians, who is the cause for this. I, I really believe that. We have time for one last question that has to be short with a short response. We end right on time. And you've had your hand up the whole time. So right here. All right, my name is Christopher Branson. I'm a student here as well. Um, you talked about the, the um, moving away from poverty and that being a part of the Millennium Goals. Now we see Agenda uh, 2030, which to, by some argue that we need to move beyond um, only economical development and look into uh, other kinds of uh, measurements. Um, that being said, you promote, um, first of all, economical development. Mm -hmm. Would you then consider what is your take on arguments for alternative ways of measuring, so to say, GDP or um, other ways of measuring uh, economical development, both in the sustainable sense, economical and environmental? Let me, let me try to answer that in, uh, with a, in a different way. Because what I should have mentioned maybe in my speech or in, a, in any comment is how to, how to tackle climate change issues as well. Do we, do, we, do we solve them nationally or do we solve them internationally? And climate change represents probably uh, one of the biggest threats when it comes to migration, when it comes to uh, difficulties in many countries. Um, and if we don't find international solutions to this, we will not succeed. I mean, in Norway, we, we have taken on a lot of measures to fight um, uh, emissions. But our take in the, in the global emissions is basically not seen on any chart because Norway is such a small country. Um, but if we find global solutions to this, we will be able to tackle it and also be part of uh, continuous economic growth and st st um, stability in, uh, in, um, in the world. I mean, this is also a question on how we can, con con how we can continue to promote uh, peaceful solutions because this will create difficulties if we are not able to solve it. But again, you have to tackle it on the international arena, not uh, nationally. That's my, at least my answer to that. 
Very good. We need to conclude, but of course we're concluding thinking about inequality, poverty, climate change, a lot of big issues, and those big issues remain. Minister Jensen, thank you very much for coming to the Heritage School and talking about these issues with us. And uh, I, there's like a small reception for those of you, I think, who want to stick around for that. But thank you again for coming. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at heritage-school.org.